1: Find a location near you at slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey,
2: Holly.
0: Hello, Dave.
2: How are you doing today on the What Difference Does It Make podcast?
0: Hi, I'm doing great today. It's another uh, musical day.
2: No, it's a Rocktober day. So happy Rocktober again to you.
0: Happy Rocktober to you too. We got to keep this up. Rocktober rocks.
2: Yeah, this is a nice treat because we have Jude Cole who, uh, as you will soon hear, has a banjo sitting in his lap as we start our talk. So. Um, he's going to fiddle around on that. I don't know if you remember Jude
0: Cole. Do you remember Jude Cole? I absolutely do. Yes, I was a fan. I think he has a really, I, I always felt he had a really nice, almost like the blue-eyed soul kind of thing. You know, I first heard him in, I think it was in the late 80s.
2: Yeah, actually in uh, 1990, he had a top 10 hit with Baby It's Tonight, which sounds yeah. so 90s. I, I loved it. I le- went back and when I was listening to it, like, ah. Uh, great tie like the mid like rock in the early 90s just before grunge started it was it was kind of leaning that way but it was poppy and rock and this this is kind of what jude was all about
0: super catchy and by the way if you go back and look at some photos i believe he might have had a mullet
2: i'm sure he did so yeah he had a a number of hits uh, as as i mentioned baby it's tonight start the car
0: he moves on to other things he moves on to other music related ventures now he's back to recording and he's got new he's got Two new records, got a new record of originals.
2: Coup de Mon and his uh, covers album, which is called Coolerator, based off the C'est La Vie song by Chuck Berry.
0: Not just cover songs, they're all cover songs from the 50s.
2: Talking with Jude, it's great to hear someone who pivots when he needs to, who is not afraid to get kicked in the pants and uh, pick himself up and start anew. So it's a, it's a wonderful story that we hear.
0: You'll find outtakes from this interview with Jude on our YouTube channel, so check it out. Indeed.
2: We have new episodes every Friday, so please subscribe. If this is your first time listening, welcome to it. Let's get into it right now. This is Jude Cole on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. It
0: says
2: J. Cole. Oh, it does say J.
3: Cole. Look at that. <laughs> Hello? Hello. Hello. J. Cole.
0: Oh, look how cool you look. Oh, hey. you
3: too? We're good. Well, I have a banjo lesson at eleven thirty, but I asked him to push it back, and I haven't heard back from him yet. But it's okay. I, we can if we go a little more than a half an hour, it's fine. But uh,
2: banjo tuning, I hear, is a bitch. How is how does it go with you?
3: You know, it's really double hard for me because I got uh, I was diagnosed with cochlear manures uh, a few years ago, and I had lost about ninety eight percent of the hearing in my right ear. It sounded like a seashell, and so the the normalist tasks like going to a restaurant was unbearable and pl- and playing music was impossible and so um i went on this water pill and i was on it for quite some time and then i did you know massive doses of prednisone and my hearing came back and so i'm really careful with it now but tuning a banjo is hard because of this uh this resonator you know so it's, it gets kind of glassy you know metallic <laughs> So I can come close, you know, the best I can. But, uh, you know, it is what it is.
0: Well, how good are you on that thing now if you're just taking lessons? (laughs) Well,
3: I'm getting better, you know. I don't have my picks on, but... That kind of thing. It's scrug stuff, but it sounds better with the pick on
0: it. Actually, sounds great.
2: Like being, <laughs> like being at Shakeys. They
0: do a lot of you know <laughs> Shakeys?
3: I will come over there. Don't even make no, me come. over No,
2: you know what? It's it's
3: my Shakeys is, that... <laughs> Shakey's is strumming, and uh, I hate that bitch. Well, that, but... it, yeah, it
2: reminds me of uh, Steve Martin, who's like, you can't play a sad song on a banjo. Oh, death and grief and sorrow and murder
3: It's interesting, yeah. I'm, I'm at that place at Banjo where I'm actually, you know, I I'll play on my own and I'm pretty good and then I get in front of people and I forget everything I know uh, so the yeah. old uh, childhood nerves come back you know, it's weird but uh, I wouldn't think I'd have that but I still do on instruments I'm not I'm not, not that familiar with so I'm going to use you two now and see if I can get through the first part of uh, Foggy Mountain uh,
1: <laughs>
3: ah see, I mess up. And I don't do that alone. I, I get through it flawlessly alone. And then when, I'm, when I when I play in front of people like I become
0: a complete novice so, that was absolutely worth the price of admission. <laughs> so, okay, I have to ask because, I, as a non-musician, a music lover, but a non-musician, how are there any similarities? Was it easier for you to learn if you play guitar?
3: Yes and no. I mean, I'm used to finger picking. I've, uh, I've been finger picking the guitar since about 1982, uh, so that comes pretty natural. The only problem is, it's like saying, "Can you write left handed?" Well, you know how to write right-handed, so you are familiar with the process, but it is literally Japanese. So the picking style is counterintuitive to what you would normally do on a guitar. So the rolls on a banjo are are just a different beast. So it took me a while. I started playing in 2016, and I very much in guitar fashion, like a year and a half. Because I hit this hump where it was just like, you know what, I'm never going to be any good at this. And then like last, I don't know, about seven months ago, I picked it up again because I thought I, I had get, gone too far to forget everything I had learned. And uh, I'm over the hump now, so I'm, I'm, I'm learning more. It's a fun yeah, it's a fun thing to pick up a new instrument later in life and yeah. in, learn. Indeed. I
2: think- and learning Foggy Mountain Breakdown is like Lady of Spain for the accordion. If you don't learn Foggy Mountain Breakdown, then you're not a banjo player until you master that.
3: that that's exactly right. And, and actually, that's not even the song that, that led me to want to play. The, the song that led me to want to play is on the Dueling Banjos album from 1973, uh, the Eric Weisberg album. And it's a song called Pony Express. And I just loved it. And I thought, you know, I just want to learn how to play that song. So if I can learn how to just play that song, I'll, um, I'll impress my friends and I'll impress myself. and I'll be. But then it didn't stop there. Now I'm learning a lot more. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's really fun. I, I really enjoy it.
2: All right, so you like learning the the lesser known songs, which kind of leads us to uh, <laughs> your your new yeah. album, or actually, you you put two. out two albums. But you, yeah. what the the first one, the one I'm referring to is the one that came out in July, uh, Coolerator, and this is a cover cover songs, but it's uh, songs you might not be too familiar with. There were a few I knew, Dave Edmond's "Dear Dad" song. I, I love that.
3: Well. It's actually a Chuck Berry song. Oh, well, I just it, remember.
2: You from know,
0: it's, it's, yes.
3: it's
0: actually. These money. are songs from the 50s, we, Dave.
2: I, yeah, well, we're an 80s podcast, kind of, so, you know. <laughs> Dear Dad,
0: don't get mad, what I'm asking for Is by the next semester,
1: can I get another car? This one here is sickening on a wide dual road Might as well be walking as to drive this old phone Almost every time I try to go and
3: Well, it's a Dave Edmonds cut that song, and I did it a lot like Dave's version because I was a big Dave Edmonds fan. And uh, when I was with Moon Martin, we toured with Rockpile, of course. And I used to go to the bar with Dave Edmonds and Nick Lowe sometimes, and we'd hang out. And Dave would ask me if I had any songs, and you know, I played him a song I wrote called "Paula Mead and he actually put that on one of his on one of his albums. And it was one of the first solo cuts that I ever got. It was the first solo cut I ever got. In other words, uh, not co-written with anyone else. So his version of Dear Dad was really influential on me. But it dawned on me recently that, you know, that song is a letter to Henry Ford. And it's basically saying, my car sucks. Can I please get a Cadillac? And I thought, you know, that's probably like 1962, I think is when that song came out. And it was never on any comp. It's one of his best songs. It's not on any of his compilations. You won't find it on the great 28 or any of his greatest hits albums. And so I have a feeling, you know, Ford didn't take too kindly to it at the time.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, Ford didn't take too kindly to a lot of things. No. But he's not a good guy. <laughs> making money. Yeah. Well, exactly. he, he did care he about that.
3: Making money. Now, he why pa- is your podcast called What Difference Does It Make? Are you Hillary Clinton fans? I don't even yes, know is, is but- that what she said? Is she What difference at this point does it make of uh, the Libyan uh, situation?
0: Oh, no, this was the Smiths song We are cuz we're an 80s based podcast. Okay.
3: And it's also
2: our, our our theory on life as well, you know.
3: Are you Morrissey fans?
2: <laughs> we're we're Smiths fans. I'm a fan of this I'm a bigger fan of the Smiths than
3: Wait, no, why why are you afraid to say you like Morrissey?
2: Well, Morrissey is kind of like uh, Henry Ford in a way. He's uh, an
0: angry young man. Yeah. An angry,
3: yeah, uh, yeah.
2: <laughs> he shares a few opinions. Uh, he's tough to, uh, to embrace at times.
3: He's a hot topic, right? He's, a, he's a, uh, you know, he he's outspoken. Exactly. He is outspoken.
0: We'll take Johnny Morrow for, uh, uh, you know, I still love, Mor- I still
2: love Morrissey as an artist. No, I, what about you? I don't, yeah. I
3: don't, I don't really, I don't really care about his music that much, but I like outspoken artists. I respect it. We don't what? have enough of it.
2: Well, What about like uh, Eric Clapton or Van Morrison? Can you uh, can you tolerate that? What they're going through?
3: Go ahead, oh. Nugent. Ted Nugent. I don't care for his music, and I don't like the, I don't like his style or his approach. But I can agree on on many things that he says. If you just take the, if you take the bravado and hyperbole out of it, and you just read what he says, well, you can't really argue that hunting in Michigan without it these animals die of starvation and are miserable deaths. So it's not like, you know, you're not doing the planet any harm by hunting these animals. Um, He's a, he's a real advocate for that. And it's just that his style is a little offensive. I understand that to to people who come from the city and there's a real separation in life now amongst like city people and rural people. And uh, it's, it's kind of, you know for somebody like me who came from a you know small town of like 1200 people it's kind of sad to see that happen but that chasm is growing wider and wider to the point where if you say you're rural now it's like what are you one of them you know it's like well i, I don't know what's what's one of them but but everything's become divisive and i i'm, I'm not crazy about that definitely
0: more know. in the last in the last few years where where yeah. are you from what small town well i'm i'm the closest town you can call my my
3: hometown from is East Moline, Illinois, and that's, it's the Quad Cities, the Davenport, Iowa, and Moline, Illinois, and then I came from a town called Carbon Cliff, which was a little more out in the rural part of that, of that uh, small city. You know, a lot of people in my hometown had, had Southern accents, and it was Northern Illinois, So how- it was very petrified.
2: And how a small town boy end up in the UK with Moon Martin?
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a strange, uh, <laughs> strange trip it's been right i had never been anywhere you know at that point and i i was depressed i was going through that adolescent depression 17 just turned 18 you know it was literally i think i was crying a lot you know i was just really emotional about it. the whole thing i didn't know what it was going to do with my life didn't see a future there i got a rand McNally road map and um you know in those days like the road maps were the cities were highlighted in yellow. And I just wanted to find the biggest spot of yellow that I could because I was such from such a country town that uh, I wanted to see the city. And it was either New York or LA. LA was warm. And so I picked LA and uh, I sold my car and uh, came out here for one month, had a friend who let me graciously let me stay in his place for a month. And uh, in that month, he also helped me kind of get hooked up to a service that led me to Moon Martin and uh, and then I was touring within a month after I arrived here and was on the Midnight Special and all these things I could only dream of, you know, so it was very bizarre. Well, come
1: on Get me rolling on my line I should know
2: all about jude cole and his wonderful new albums coup de mon and coolerator and we will learn more after the break
4: hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds. Now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function,
0: Welcome back to the "What Difference Does It Make" podcast, and our guest today, Jude Cole. I feel it feels like you must be leaving a little bit out.
3: <laughs> that story, out. yeah. Well, there is a,
0: <laughs> hard
3: to condense it all, but uh, you know, to add uh, surreal matters, you know, even more surreal matters to it. You know, I would, I was living on my own. Um, I had just finally toured enough to be able to afford a used car. So this, at this point, I'm nineteen just turned 19 and I'm making like $250 a week. I bought myself a used Gran Torino and I used to go and just take rides by myself and listen to these new records. And one of them was a band called the records. And I would go, I would like smoke about 10 bong hits (laughs) and go, you know, I didn't have really any friends in California. So I would just, uh, I had my band, you know, that I worked with. Mm. They didn't live, live near me. And so I would go out on my own, take these rides, listen to music. One day I come home, one night I come home after listening to the records album, and I see there's a message on my recorder call. You know, you remember (laughs) recorder calls? You might not. as I know know you're not. But uh, anyway, at that point, I saw I had a message. I turned the machine on, and it's an English accent from a guy named Will Butch. And uh, he's in a band called The Records and was wondering if I might want to uh, join the band and i thought okay <laughs> and i'm high you know, yeah, okay.
1: right. know.
3: someone's fucking with it <laughs> you're on candid camera i mean it was weird it was really weird but it turned out to be legit and uh, a month later i find my, found myself in london in, in the records
1: everyone's talking the lines are all buzzing today so much is gossiped by
2: I know that's amazing. So, big, I mean, you're so obviously you're familiar with Starry Eyes, and they say, "Can you play that song?" And you're you're like, "Of course, I could play Starry Eyes." But how? Course. Yeah. So, I mean, you were familiar with them. How were they familiar with you? Did you ever find out that story, or who referred them? I did
3: that because uh, Moon's producer Craig Leon was producing their new album, and he was the one who. Uh, they weren't real happy with their current guitar player, Hugh Gower, who who did a very masterful job, I have to say, but the personalities I think clashed and, um, they wanted someone that they were, you know, could get along with better on the bus. And that has a lot to do with being in a band, you know, and I got along with them famously well. So we, we just, and it was, it it was sorry to see it go. I was sorry to see it go about a year and some change later, it became really evident that it wasn't, it wasn't going to work. The record wasn't selling. And, uh, they had lost funding for touring, and they had, you know, their deal was in jeopardy, and so forth. And it was very sad uh, to have to leave the band, but they wanted me to move to England indefinitely, and I, I wasn't willing to. Could do not that. do that.
2: I mean, these are valuable lessons you learn, especially when later in life you become a manager. Like, okay, here's what we got. Here's some, here's some rules that uh, we want to live by, and
3: I- bad in a thousand more. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I always, exactly.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: I always told Lifehouse, you know, I'm a good manager for you, not because I'm so smart, because I just made so many mistakes that I can prevent you from making them, and I did. I did prevent them from making quite a lot of of uh, financial errors and so on and so forth.
0: How did that transition come about? Like, what was it in you that said, "I, I, I can do this. I, I, I want to do this"?
3: Well, you've heard of Tony Robbins, right? <laughs> yeah. It yep. felt like, like an infomercial now. <laughs> it was about 1997. Grunge had obviously taken over, and I was no part of any sort of hair band, metal band. I was never a part of anything, really. I was always a square peg. But I, you, if you kind of didn't do either the Dave Matthews thing or the grunge thing or whatever was going on in the 90s, I really didn't, wasn't a huge fan of any of it. And I realized it was going to be very hard for me to get re-signed. I have two kids and a wife and I had to support them. And I just started to really doubt my ability to be able to do it musically. And then, so I'm depressed one night and I'm kind of like, you know, the walls are caving in. My manager had died. and All these kind of dominoes are falling and I just, I needed kind of a way out and I, I was watching that infomercial it was about three in the morning and I'm up in the more you know, middle of the night pacing, you know, it's right around the time where princess Di had died. And I saw this Tony Robbins commercial with he and Lisa Gibbons. And I'm like, man, that guy looks really fucking happy. I'd like to be that happy for one day right now. If I could be happy for one day and look like that, I'll buy this thing. So I spent the three or 400 bucks to get the CDs and it's interesting, you know, it was a silly thing, but I was really, you know, what uh, Rick Rubin says, you know, be, be coachable. And I always thought that was really good advice because so many Americans aren't coachable anymore. Everybody's a know-it-all. And I think at that point I was so humble and, and just, like, willing to, to take anything that could mean, like, paying a mortgage and making sure that I had food on the table, that I was very coachable. And the Tony Robbins thing was really interesting because he made me kind of look at some beliefs that I had from instilled from maybe being a you know, Catholic, old beliefs about money. Uh, he had me look at all the other possible skills I had, which I wasn't even thinking of because I was thinking, like, how am I going to make it as a singer and a player? But I, I, it kind of dawned on me that all these artists had asked me in the past if I would manage them for some strange reason. And so I started to take that seriously. And I had met a young female through a songwriter friend in Nashville. Her name was Pat Bunch. Uh, she gave me a videotape of a young girl named Lindsay Pagano, who was 13. I got her signed to Warner Brothers. And Ron anniello was producing a band called, well, what became Lifehouse. They were called oh. Bliss at the time. Um, and I got them signed to DreamWorks. So suddenly I'm a manager of <laughs> two actors, two major labels. The next thing I know, Mo Austin brings me into his office and, he, and he, when he realizes that I'm not going to relinquish the management post, uh, as they so often try to do with you know, wannabe managers. Mm-hmm. They'll get the young punk in, and they'll make a better deal mm-hmm. with the artist through him, and then they'll get a real manager in place. And so that's what they tried to do to me. And when they realized I wasn't going anywhere, he tried to get me a partner, and I, I became partners with Irving Azoff. <laughs> So all of this crazy stuff was I have a lot of beginners luck in a lot of ways and, on that front. And uh, I, I learned a lot from Irving. Irving is a very, very smart, uh, smart guy. He was very connected. Just a wonderful chess player in it all. And I learned a lot from him. Uh, but then, you know, a few years later, Kiefer Sutherland, who, uh, you know, a dear friend of mine for many years, we started a studio together. So uh, I had I, I'd, I'd left A's off because I, I was, didn't want to do the, the drive. Well, I lived in Calabasas. Irving's offices were in Westwood. And then Kiefer in my new studio was in East LA. That drive was, I yeah. did it for months until I finally said I can't do it anymore. And I went on my own. And I've been on my own ever since, I think that was like 2004.
0: That's pretty fortuitous to get connected to Irving Azoff like that, you know, because I think you can learn, however you end up, you learn a lot.
3: Well, you'll find when you have something hot, everyone becomes your best friend. No, no, no disrespect to Irving. He was very good to me. But you'll find that everybody wants you when you have something hot and nobody wants you when you don't. And the business is really as simple as that. If I could give anybody, you know, any sort of quick, quick study take on it, it's like get something hot until you start knocking on doors. Like don't knock on doors with nothing.
2: I mean, the scenario sounded almost like Almost Famous, except Almost Famous came out in 2000. So you're... Your little uh, with the, the, the manager, precursor. right? Yeah. Like the, the, you were the starter manager that they were trying to get rid of. Uh, yeah, and, well, almost, and but bet of course the experience I'm sure is like, no, this is, I am not, I'm not leaving this. I know exactly what I, what I want, oh, and what, they, what they, the band wants.
3: They did a whole production. Yeah. To get, you know, oh, okay. So here, I'll tell you this little story. <laughs> and I don't think Ron will mind me telling this. Ron and I were partners at first, Ron Anniella, the producer. So we had agreed to manage uh, Jason Wade and whatever band he developed. It was, like I said, it was Bliss at the time. We had agreed to manage them together. So DreamWorks, being as savvy as they are, did the deal with us. Clive Davis wanted to fly me to New York on his own plane and all this other stuff. I said, no, I'm going with Lenny and Mo and Michael. They were who I knew and loved, and uh, and, and I gave this act to them. But once this deal was signed, they called me into a meeting And it was all the heads of all the departments. And they started drilling Ron and I. They called us into a meeting. They drilled us on things they knew we didn't know. And Ron started getting red and sweaty. And I started getting pissed because I'm like, you know, they they were just bringing up all kinds of elevated topics that they knew we were new managers and they, they were really putting the heat on us. And all I said was, you know, I don't have the answer for that yet, but I'll find out in 24 hours. Right. And in the parking lot after that meeting, Ron said, hey, man, I'm out. I said, what? He goes, I'm out, dude. I can't, I can't do that. I can't do this kind of thing. So he knew right away he wasn't, uh, he wasn't minded in that way. He wanted to do creative stuff only. And I was really kind of tired of the creative thing. I had done years of it, and I was ready to have a more stable life at home. So I said, well, I'm hanging on, and I'm doing it. And uh, that was 22 years ago.
2: Hang by a moment. Man, you took that song <laughs> to heart. <laughs> and to number one.
3: It was a pit bull move, and I, it, it was bossy, but I knew what they were trying to do. And it wasn't as vicious as much as it was kind of their MO. All mm-hmm. all record companies' MOs are that. They get the young manager to get the band signed, and then they get their buddies in.
2: But That's great. I mean, that's, that's what you want in a manager. That's, you know, it's like who's tough is who's tough and can yeah. figure out the answer. And it's like, no matter how tough it gets, I'm going to be there for you. I'll figure out the, I don't know the answer. I'll get it though. For you
3: the manager, what you really want is the fifth member. Yeah. yeah. You really want that fifth member. You want somebody who takes things personally, but not to the point where you know he acts irrationally he or she acts irrationally. You just, but you do want somebody that feels so closely to it that, and in my case with, with, with Jason Wade, I mean, it really did become, I uh, was a, a fifth member and really his partner for, since the beginning. Was
2: your manager that way when you were in the early nineties? And did you feel like uh, he was, he was also a member of your band?
3: Well, I started out with a young uh, manager and his name was Dennis Pregnolato from South Africa. And he was a very, very kind and, and good guy. I really, really liked him and he was my friend and. I know that um, he tried, but I think he was a little more versed in television than he was in record company politics. And my first record on Warner Brothers came out, and it just didn't even make a dent. And I thought, man, I'm going to lose my deal if I don't if I don't find some relationships here. And um, I left him, and I found Ed Leffler. Ed Leffler managed Van Halen, yeah. And he was an old manager. He was a a guy that was very networked in for many years. I think he was a tour manager for the Beatles. He had managed the Carpenters and Sweet and Sammy Hagar for three years and then Van Halen. So he was very, uh, he had a lot of relationships, but he had a huge ego and he was the kind of guy who was like, I'll take care of it. And he would go in and he was the guy, you know, the old days you would hear about managers turning desks over in record company president's offices and things. He was one of those guys. And he would scream at the top of his lungs and, At the end of the day, you know, you don't know whether you got what you wanted or whether you got them pacifying that loud manager and then kind of screwing him on the back end. Uh, So I learned both from, you know, Irving had a style very similar, but he wasn't a loudmouth. He was just such a powerful guy that he'd basically go in and make threats and and they would do what he wanted. You know,
2: (laughs) Don Henley said he he may be Satan, but he's (laughs) our Satan.
3: Well, yeah. And, and, and I've seen Irving work and like a person can call and make a threat on him and he's got his phone. And in five phone calls, he's got them. He's got them out. I mean, he can literally do that. He's that powerful. <clears throat> I used to tell my assistant because she would say like, well, you know what Irving would do? And I'd have to say, you know what? I have to realize I'm not Irving and I'm not going to send that kind of a bluff. I'm not going to bl- be able to bluff people that I am. So I had to come up with a different style. And mine, you know, mine worked for me. I was a little bit of an imposter. I don't think I'm an organic manager. I don't think that's really my calling. I'm an artist. As an artist, I I began to notice that so many artists lived hand to mouth. And so many of the executives had homes with swimming pools and and cars and families. And I, I started to become envious. Like, I saw the Eric Clapton's doing extremely well. But there were so many more artists that were not doing that. And uh, after my first album experience, I thought, wow, you know, I'm a lot closer to that other side of the, uh, of the spectrum. I don't know how long I could keep up the successful side. Uh, the, the radio hits were so hard to come by. The touring was so relentless that I think I did. I daydreamed about having more of a, a sane job. And I think mm-hmm. management really did help me in that regard for a long time. So that was 22 years ago.
1: Yeah.
3: And now with COVID, everything's slowed down. Uh, and I found time to kind of go, what was I up to anyway? <laughs> and yeah. so, I, you know, the, the, that's the Coolerator record and the
0: Kudamon record. And- I was so interested in both of them, obviously, but Coolerator, first of all, I love the name. Thank Chuck- you. Chuck Berry, we can thank for that. Did you have a Coolerator? Yeah.
2: yeah. Why would you, you? You wouldn't have a Coolerator. You wouldn't even know what that is.
3: The only reason I know what it is is from the, from the song, uh, say la he the old folks goes to show you never can tell mm-hmm. the Chuck Berry He says cooler Raider in that song.
0: Yeah. That's the, from, from the lyric, but did you have a thing for fifties music? Did you, I mean, is that, did you have a passion for it? Did you, I know I read that you, you did this over time, that it was a, this was sort of a passion project, but fifties music.
3: Yeah. yeah. It was a real second. It was almost like a past life experience for me. <laughs> the first tour I did with Moon Martin the first time we went to New York City, so this would be 1978. Now, I knew of the American Graffiti album, and I knew some of the classic 50s songs. But we had a driver driving us from the airport to the hotel who was like a, a freak, so not the freak, you know? And I knew all this stuff in New York. I got a fucking doo-wop channel. You wouldn't believe this a fucking channel, you know? And I'm listening to this kind of like, okay, all I'm in, like I got to my room at the Gramercy Park, and I put the doo-wop channel on. And I'm looking out the window at the fire escapes and, uh, and the New York scenery and this doo-wop music was like uh, something. I, it was, the band was going out that night to dinner and I told them, like, I'm in, I'm sorry, I'm going to stay in. I was having too good of a time by myself just listening to this music and then recalling <laughs> this life I might have had. You know, because it felt so familiar to me. And ever since then, I've just been infatuated with the doo-wop music, especially the slow stuff. So, that consequently, that's that's pretty much what I did uh, on this record. I don't think I did any fast. I didn't do any of that stuff, but uh, I did the uh, you know the the song Desiree was always a favorite, and I tried quite a few more that didn't make the record too. I had to I had to kind of cherry pick the ones that sounded more. That'll be the sequel in the right place. You know, some of them just didn't sound right. Yeah, you did do one. My
2: favorite was the Flamingos, I Only Have Eyes for You. I I, I think that's one of the greatest songs of all
3: time. Just It really production. is. Yeah. It's just a gorgeous song. And I tried to do it really more as a sycophant kind of fan, you know, like a, just a fanboy. Yeah. Um, I wasn't trying to reinvent the wheel there. Art Garfunkel already did a pretty good job of that. I like his version. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do one that was a little more true to the flamingos version just to see if i could and it's so funny like little things i had to pick up along the way like shibab shibab <laughs> shibab, shibab it was late yeah and if it wasn't late yeah it didn't feel right so it took me some goes you know to, to kind of get that to bop thing down and then uh, as we were mixing it it still didn't feel there and the engineer was kind of astute enough to listen to the original version and whatever he did, he, he, he panned it left and right and realized, oh my god they're using reverb only on one side the other side's bone dry, and now nobody Either. really does that in mixing um, but we tried it and it's like
1: oh ah. you know, the <laughs> angels started singing at
3: that point like once the reverb was just on the one side, it was like this parallax of, of perfection
1: My love must be a kind A of blind love I can't see anyone but you You love me love You love me love You love me love You love me love Are the stars Night. I don't know if it's cloudy or, or bright. bright. I only have eyes for you.
2: But it, yeah, that was me. the days of only what, like, four track or two track, you know, he had, had to kind of probably go back in time and figure out that, you know, how did the flamingos do this? How was this recorded? Well, you know, it's like the, the, the Beatles or something, you know?
3: Well, it is like the Beatles because when they re- originally did the flamingos, it was only mono. You remember the stereo yeah. was, so, so w- they would have one side with reverb on it because if they did both sides, it was too reverberated yeah. by the time you, you, you bounced it to mono. And, uh, Not bounced it to mono. It was in mono. Right. But they only had two tracks. So one track would have the reverb. So then later when they made the stereo versions, then you heard that only one side had the reverb. Uh, But they really mixed for AM radio back then. It was so cool. We had a great channel here in LA um, on AM. It was 1260, K-Surf. And they changed it to classical. And I was so bummed because I thought, man, this is like, you were able to go back in time and listen to the songs of that era on the yeah. on AM, yeah, era, uh, on AM radio, and they took it away, fucking knuckleheads! I could kill them.
2: <laughs> I think a uh, future career might be
3: uh, you could be a program director. No, no. A, no, no, okay, not in a million years. <laughs> I don't the, bring it back. Was a Jack Nicholson line in one of those movies? I, I'd rather stick needles in my eyes. Yeah. <laughs> I got <gotcha>. you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> all right. So, speaking of which, uh, the songwriting process, you're writing songs for the first time in 20 years, maybe. Or, how did, why did you uh, start doing this? Uh, I
3: never stopped writing. Okay. Most of the Lifehouse singles were uh, Jason and me writing together. Of course, when I produced three of their records, I wrote a lot of their songs with them and, and I wrote a lot on my own. Lindsay Pagano, when I got her signed, uh, I wrote all of the songs on her record. Uh, I, and I I wrote with all the artists, I, most of the artists I produced along the way, Mozilla and some others, but uh, I never stopped writing. My main focus was in management, and so I kind of kept the blinders on there, but uh, I don't know, you know, like, I really wanted to see if I still sounded any good. You know, I think that was more important to me than anything was like, can I still even do this? You know, when you're on the road and you're Playing all the time, your voice gets really strong. Uh, your your ability with guitar is second nature; you don't have to think about it. And I found myself from years of management going like, "Ooh, I, I got to think about this." And, and my voice is very raspy, and it's not as you know, strong as it once was. So I didn't know what it would sound like, but I, I was really happy with the outcome of both records. Obviously, I put them out. So
0: you haven't lost it. Is that <laughs> is that where you recorded? In your are you in a studio now, or are you in in uh... Or is this just a practice room where you're sitting right now? I have a
3: studio on, on my property, and I, I just kind of walk to work now. And I did do some of it here. I did uh, some of it in uh, – I, I shared a uh, rented a room from Chris Lord Algy in his studio at Can-Am. Some of it was done there a few years back, and then I'll work wherever. But uh, the main thing for Coolerator was to use – a similar process as they did back in those days. So then you could sound, you know, I really wanted it to sound authentically kind of fifties and sixties. So that was a little trickier.
2: And one of the benefits of working from home is apparently you've got some talented neighbors who, uh, who can help out on production.
3: I did. Yeah. Pat Leonard, uh, Pat would just happen to call me up one day when I was here doing my walkthrough. I just bought this property up in the Canyon. And he said, well, do you mind if I come and see it? Because I'm kind of looking for a place. And he came and he liked it so much, he bought the place next door. So we were neighbors <laughs> for the last seven years. Now, he recently just moved, I think, to the East Coast. But uh, he would walk down here with his synthesizer and, and just, you know, put his parts on. And he's like just a play so,
2: date. <laughs> just yeah, bringing his yeah. toys over.
3: It was a play date. And uh, he's so talented that. You know, all I had to tell him was like, "I'm just kind of going for this Adam Hart mother kind of thing." Like, it's, you know, had a song kind of like a Neil Young meets Pink Floyd thing, and he brought his Nord keyboard down, and, and just layer after layer, it, it started to really come to life as I envisioned it. It's a wonderful musician.
1: Summer sun is sinking. I don't
3: know where you are.
1: I don't know what I'm thinking. But I'm only sitting in a cafe, driving in your car I don't know what I'm feeling, but I'm only far away The night's approaching like a fighter to the stage If I'm in for it somehow I'm not afraid Am I picking up that your heart might be gone If it is then bring it on Summer sun is falling Underneath the tide I feel my life is calling And the future's ready for a hammer Right over my head is gone, I'm going to be
0: It seems uh, charmed that, you would, that the way these things fell into place and the way it came together.
3: Well, you know, I try not to put in. I've always gone with the elements, you know. It's mm-hmm. the fountainhead Howard Rourke thing of, you know, using the elements. If he was in a desert, he would build his house and make it look like it was coming out of the sand and the rock you know mm. and so if i was making a record in a studio i would often ask the receptionist if she could sing and sometimes would wind up on the record mm. you know and so the, things like that so i like to go where it's easiest <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> why not least amount of effort and two of my favorite songs are, are kind of polar opposites i love uh i'll miss you it's just kind of a, a hooky pop song as I, I loved and then uh, the one that ends the album Partners in Time, which I I really mm-hmm. really enjoyed. That it was just something completely different from what I, you might expect from
3: from you. Well, Not it's nice to he- hear that you like "I Miss You" because I love that song. Okay. And I'll I love you-
2: yeah, I'm a hook guy. I love that. <laughs>
3: Well, it's of the funny thing about that record, and you'll hear this after I tell you, that I was really channeling Chrissy Hyde. So listen to that record Not again me. sometime and think Chrissy Hind, because when I think of it, I go, it's really obvious to me who I was doing. You know, I was doing me. Everything I do sounds like me to some degree. But I get inspired by things just like anybody else. And that one's really, it was a real pretender's kind of circa 1984, 85 kind of thing. Way down late.
1: Stay away Without dreaming of you It's hard to accept This feeling inside Keeps chipping away my pride I miss you,
3: I miss you. Yeah, And then Partners in Time was really a, a a story that had happened to me a true story that happened to me in hollywood that i was able just to channel uh, one afternoon sitting outside my studio here and it was really just a, a dictation um, it came out very easy and very effortless and it was like wow like that was just a gift
2: it's all true where were you in this uh, scenario i was
3: recording start the car at cherokee and i was coming out of the studio late one night it was around two in the morning and i noticed this man sitting at the bus stop uh, and i i was living in park La Brea at the time uh, and so i was on my way home to park Lebrea. and i'm thinking like what is that guy? that guy didn't seem right he was very old and i didn't think the bus ran buses ran anymore and even if they did they were, where's this guy going at two in the morning he was way too old so i turned the car around and i swung by and i pulled up at the, at the bus stop and i said you know i don't think the buses run he said, Oh, okay. I said, you know, if, if you could tell me where you're going, I'll take you. And he goes, okay. So I got him in my truck going to work. I said, well, where do you work at two in the morning? He goes, I don't know. Hmm. I said, Oh, okay. Well, as so I pulled the car over and we're both just sitting there, you know, and, and, uh, and this is all, the, I got this in the, in the lyric of the song. And then finally he pulls up his suit sleeve, you know, and he's uh it's like a holocaust you know but uh, he's yeah he, uh, he, he was all spotted and, and bruised and everything he was so old but he had a little bracelet on that had his address on it i'm like oh yeah. thank you god wow you know? so i took him it was down melrose i took him down melrose and uh, took him home and this lady comes running out they had been looking for him all day hmm. that's actually happened to me three times um you'll be surprised what you can spot in a city when, your when eyes you're are,
2: looking right when you're open
3: yeah uh, Uh, when you notice the behaviors of some of these elderly people, they just forget where they are.
2: He was waiting at the
1: bus stop in Hollywood at 2 a.m. Drove right by at first, then I circled around again. He was wearing a Sunday suit, a folded kerchief in his pocket, sitting perfect and polite like a nightlight in a socket I said, excuse me sir but these buses, well, they don't run this time of night and if you tell me where you're headed I could help you with a ride and he said, oh I didn't know that and thank you, yes you can So I helped him up in my pickup truck, a frail and kind old man. Partners in time. Partners in time.
3: It's a really great song. I um, hey, uh, yeah. The song meant a lot to me after I finished it. I think I had gotten kind of emotional after I finished it because it was like, wow, like as a songwriter, you know, I, I automatically am thinking like what other experiences have I got? <laughs> right. But uh, as just a, a, a fan I just thought wow, that, that felt like something I leave behind that I'm really happy to leave behind. Leave behind, I guess that's the best way I can put it.
0: You can't conjure up stuff like that. <laughs> And that's, yeah. that's
2: organic. All right. When I was going down the uh, the Jude Cole rabbit hole, I, I looked on YouTube, <laughs> and I I love seeing Letterman clips where bands play with, uh, you know, you get to play with the world's most dangerous band, which happened <laughs> to you. And I I mean, it's just, and let I love it when Letterman loves a performance from a musician, and that happened to you. So, can you kind of? touch on that because i'm i just uh I, it was a great it was great performing you had the horns you had paul schaefer and and, and you know anton fig and will lee it was um i mean was it as amazing as it looked
3: those things are always a bit of a blur yeah i went to new york i was in my hotel room and and this is honestly is the thing i hated about being a solo artist the most i hated how i might look funny enough like did I look fat in these jeans? I was very, very, uh, it comes, goes way back with me, you know, just really square peggish, uh, mm-hmm. much more comfortable off the camera. And so my stress would be like, does my hair look right? Like, am I, am I wearing the right thing? I don't feel like I'm wearing, this is stupid. And the last minute I'm like, oh, this looks stupid. Like, you know, and so that kind of thing. I was very self-conscious about things like that. So those moments would go by in a blur because I was so in my head usually about something else. And then obviously, like, when it's time to play, then, then every, all the lights turn off and I'm just, I'm focused on the song. And so I, I knew how to get through it. Um, and the band, obviously, with um, Anton and, like, the, that whole band was great. You know, they, they were really easy to pick it up. I rehearsed with them, I think, maybe two times. Yeah. And uh, then we played it live. That was easy
2: our next guest is a talented musician and get ready this is a great song ladies and gentlemen and i and my promise to you is my holiday gift to you folks it's going to blow the roof off this dump uh he will be performing the uh, title song from his uh, most recent album
3: it's uh, called right here it's uh, right here and it's called start the car ladies and gentlemen please welcome jude cole jude
1: Of the pressure, so tired of the pace Just wanna grab you, baby, and get out of this place I got no chance of making it, working downtown. Walking slow and talking low Tired of going down, down, down Start the car We gotta move Let's sit on living This ain't no groove It's been a long Hard road So come on baby Let's drive it home Start the car
0: you ever look back at it and remember your feelings but see it differently afterwards well i remember like when i did leno um
3: they did a a pre-interview with me and i was pretty funny um and then when i got on the show i wasn't funny at all and i tried to tell a couple of the more humorous things on my and it didn't really it fell flat you know because i, think I was <laughs> really nervous and i was always kind of remorse about that like damn it you know i wish i could have made uh, the Leno thing, I was much more comfortable because I dressed the way I wanted to dress. I wore a flannel shirt and my jeans like I'd normally just wear, you know. That's when but you no, need a good
2: most, manager, right, to, to tell you what you need. You're
3: always hurry up and wait. You know, the, the right. television shows, especially the live night, late night things, they're always hurry up and wait. So you you get there at noon, you know, or one o'clock in the afternoon. You have to wait in their dressing room. Uh, you have to go down and do your rehearsal. Then you have to do the camera blocking. Uh, and Then you have to get ready. Meanwhile, you've eaten like four bagels and cream cheese and you know M and M's and donuts and everything else, and you're like, "Oh, I'm ready to go to bed now." You know, Uh, so usually those things are like a loss of a day. I didn't really enjoy them very much,
2: but it's there forever now. I mean, you know, thanks to YouTube.
3: After the fact, yes.
2: Did you have a moment with Letterman? I'm sorry to go back to Letterman, but I'm just obsessed with that. No, you, no he
3: down shook her hand and said and said hello before. Um and he was very nice the way he introduced me and very nice about afterwards but uh no that was just one of those things I mean I think uh I think everyone at that point thought that I was going to be a big name. Yeah. I even felt that. And it was it was very weird how it didn't really happen but You know, I've tried to explain to so many people who are like, dude, man, you got screwed or whatever. I'm like, you could not have scripted a better life for me the way it worked out. I was not cut out to be a star, not personality wise, not in the amount of work that it takes to be a traveler. Like, so it literally, if you'd have given me a pen and paper and said, write your perfect life out, I couldn't have done it better than it worked out, you know, the way it worked out. So a lot of people think that I wish I would have been bigger and I don't.
2: One thing that's going to work out better is you're going to become a better banjo player. Can't make you miss your lesson. We've taken uh, a lot of your time. Thank you so much for, for uh, doing this.
3: Guys Thank you so much.
0: This is great. It was really, really nice to chat with you. And I can't wait to hear the banjo stuff. Maybe you'll record it someday.
3: You know, I, I <laughs> plan on that. If I ever get good enough where I can play in front of somebody without making a mistake, expect a recording. Nice. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. We're for very,
0: the, we're a very easy audience for the sequel. <laughs>
2: Are you uh, taking this on the road at all in next year, or do you want to to play in front of people?
3: You know, honestly, on on a more meaningful point, like with the the ear thing I was talking about before, I'm really protective of them. And loud music is one of the worst things I can do for my ears. So probably just continue to make more recordings. And uh, whoever appreciates them, I'm more than grateful. But uh, the playing live thing, probably not so much.
0: Well, anytime you want to come on and talk about any of your upcoming records, we're happy to. Yeah.
3: Thank you guys so, so much. All right.
2: All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. And yeah, we look forward to uh, hearing more from you in the future, especially this banjo record. And <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thanks, and, uh, Jude. Yeah. Cheers. Enjoy. Well, another great episode, Holly, don't you think?
0: Uh, I definitely think so. I think Jude is a super interesting guy. I think his all the, all the turns he's taken. He's very Zen. I loved hearing about the tony robbins thing and i really get that i have a lot of respect for him he's done what he's wanted as an artist and a, and in on the business side of the music it's very cool yeah i we didn't even touch on it but
2: uh if you want to on youtube you could see him uh he used to be the music editor for extra the tv show so he's talked with Mick jagger and keith richards and bb king and a lot of his favorites it's kind of fun to, to look on YouTube and see what what he did when he was kind of doing what Holly and I are doing. Uh, we recommend uh, checking out Kudaman and Coolerator. These are his two new albums, the first in 20 years. So kind of cool to, uh, to hear Jude Cole make music again.
0: Yeah, he's got a great, a great voice and really, really enjoy him. All good things come to an end, so let's wrap
2: this up. And until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out.